Hello and welcome to the first episode of Contra International, a monthly podcast exploring the contradictions of disaster capitalism and the movements across the world seeking to challenge it. I am Ben Ray. And I'm Alice Kinghorn Gray. In Contra International, we're going to speak to people who can give us real insight and understanding into how global capitalism is changing and the movements which are fighting to transform the system. We start off our world tour in Latin America, a continent where leftists across the world have invested a lot of their hope in an anti-capitalist transformation. Alice, you even went to live there for a while, didn't you? You were doing a little bit of the old revolutionary tourism, I think, no? Yep, uh, very cliche as it is, but I did a stint at Havana University, which I do have to shout out to Dr. Par Kumaraswamy, who got me a placement there. That was very good of her. But yes, very uh, predictable. Um, I was 18 years old, though, so. And what did did you learn about revolutionary Latin America? Well, I probably learned more about how to drink straight rum, to be honest. Okay. Well, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna learn a bit more today, at least. We will. That's not the topic. That's why I'm just asking questions, not answering them. Okay. Well, I remember when you and I first started talking about politics together. It was around the time of Fidel Castro's death, and we were debating in what direction Latin American politics was going. Um, because the left wing, pink so-called pink tide governments, all seemed to be uh, in retreat. Yeah, so Fidel's death was in 2016. Hugo Chavez had um, died a few years before. I guess there's a real sense of um, like an era being over and a lot of uncertainty of of what what comes next. I mean, the kind of the pendulum swing going back again. So yeah, quite a change. And then 2018 uh, was the rise of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. His election was like a big shock around the world because it seemed like if Brazil could suddenly go towards a kind of hard right wing populism and there was Trump in the US and Modi in India as well, nowhere was safe in this. And it's Brazil and Bolsonaro that we're going to look at um, today and hone in on. Um, I'm not sure how many folk listening to us today will be aware, but there's going to be an election coming up on the 2nd of October. I mean, I'd say arguably this is one of the most important elections in the world this year. Um, but so we're, we're really uh, fortunate to have Professor Alfredo Sad Filio to talk about it on the pod. Alfredo is a, a good friend of yours, isn't he? Can you tell us a bit about him? Yeah, I mean, he was my uh, lecturer and tutor at SOAS University when I was doing my uh, master's there. He's now at King's College London. He's... Um, head of international development there. He's um, a Marxist economist and has written a number of books about neoliberalism. Uh, but he's done one recently, in, well, it's 2018, called Brazil Neoliberalism versus Democracy. So he's uh, well-placed to talk to us about these issues. I've heard Alfredo speak at a counter event before and he's, he does seem to be a pretty sharp guy and, and, and a fluent speaker. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Let's, let's crack on with the interview. So firstly, thanks, Alfredo, for coming on our podcast. We're really um, delighted to have you. Thank you, Alice. Uh, thank you, Ben. It's really nice to talk to you. And uh, I'm sure we we'll have a very interesting conversation about what's going on in, in, in Brazil uh, these days. Great. So 
let's start with um, the fact that since Bolsonaro was elected in 2018, we've seen the pandemic crisis, major political, political scandals, and now obviously the inflation crisis. So could you start by outlining how Brazil has changed during Bolsonaro's four years as president? And to what extent has Bolsonaro been successful in imposing his political and economic agenda on Brazil? I think this has been a bit surprising, uh, particularly for um, the left uh, that opposed Bolsonaro relentlessly uh, from the very uh, start. He achieved power um, with a significant uh, electoral majority, not just uh, his 55% of the vote in the second round of the elections in uh, 2018 against 45% uh, for the candidates supported by uh, the left. Um, it was more significant than that. Bolsonaro's victory is more significant than that because uh, he achieved a significant majority, sometimes uh, up to 80% of the vote in the key metropolitan areas in the country, and he won uh, massively in the most uh, important, uh, economically important uh, states uh, in Brazil. Bolsonaro won in across the whole of the center-south of Brazil. He only lost in the northeast and sections of the north of Brazil that are the poorest regions in the country. So it was very clear the pattern of voting. Uh, the middle classes, middle classes by and large, uh, voted for Bolsonaro. The uh, capitalists voted for Bolsonaro, and the poor and the very poor voted for the for the left. I think this 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 cleavage is is um, widely recognized. So even if by any chance the left had been able to win that election by by a small majority of some sort, they would still have lost the most uh, significant economic uh, areas in the country. It would have been extremely difficult for them to 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 govern. So Bolsonaro uh, comes to power at the beginning of 2019 with a huge um, let's say, political capital and capacity to impose the agenda in the country. He does not do that. He fails miserably and completely to do that because, um, as had been pointed by a number of commentators from the beginning, Oscar is not someone who is naturally a political leader. He does not build alliances. He does not know how to bring people together. He does not know how to run a political movement. He did not have a political party uh, to support himself. And this was very different between Brazil and other countries going through these experiences of authoritarianism under neoliberalism. If you think of Turkey or India, or the United States, even under Donald Trump, or et cetera, Italy, any uh, country you can think of, uh, the experience of Brazil is unique in the sense that Bolsonaro at the head of a disorderly a constellation of forces that wasn't particularly in many cases imposed by him, uh, especially the more organized political forces in the country. They took him on uh, because he was the viable candidate, ended up being the viable candidate against the left. So it was an anti-left vote, just as it was uh, a reactionary right-wing vote for the uh, program that Bolsonaro represented. He also brought together a number of, of, of promises, ideas, and forces that uh, in time proved to be very, very different. One was the agenda of neoliberalism, a radicalized neoliberalism that was symbolized by his minister of finance, uh, Paulo Guedes, who was a minor 
um, Chicago boy back in the days of General Pinochet in Chile, who came to Brazil and failed as an academic, then failed as a banker, uh, but was remained at the periphery of the political uh, apparatus or, or the political um, uh, circus in the country and attached himself to Bolsonaro relatively early on. And this was a winning bet, perhaps the only winning bet he made in his life. Became Minister of Finance with huge powers and enormous backing from the media, from the neoliberal lobby, from the banking sector, from uh, big capital, and ideologically from the middle classes to implement his absolutely radical uh, uh, project of as he summarized at the time, privatizing everything and essentially replicating the Pinochet model in Brazil. He couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it uh, for a wide variety of reasons, because the, the machinery of the state is very difficult to move, because Congress is relatively powerful, because regional interests block uh, radical attempts at economic reorganization, because uh, it was very difficult to bring together the economic forces that would have to support this kind of radical uh, program. They did manage to um, make incremental uh, reforms, reform of uh, social security, a reform of labor law, um, some advances along the road of privatization, but much less than the left feared, much less than the radical right uh, aimed for uh, at the beginning. Another very important strand of support for Bolsonaro is the uh, security uh, lobby. That is the police, uh, that's the army, uh, but also um, the gun lobby. The gun lobby is very powerful in Brazil. It's one of the big lobbies in Congress. And this is something that Bolsonaro has managed to, uh, to achieve, the liberalization of gun laws uh, in Brazil. Now, this... Um, is very closely connected to the gangster base of the Bolsonaro family and the Bolsonaro administration. That is partly um, an attempt to get favor with the particular industry uh, and the uh, weapons, guns industries uh, across the chain down to retail traders has profited enormously from this. But the Bolsonaro family has been alleged is very heavily involved uh, in a whole range of criminal uh, activities, especially in Rio de Janeiro. So that um, focus on guns serves to boost not only Bolsonaro's macho uh, image and his incredibly, unbelievably coarse uh, on that uh, on that area, but also uh, serves um, specific economic. Uh, interests of Bolsonaro himself and his close family, especially his three sons, all three of whom uh, are, are politicians of some prominence in his uh, administration. So Bolsonaro also had the support of evangelical churches. He managed to bring that uh, group uh, together in exchange for economic favors. Some of those uh, evangelical churches that have become very popular in Brazil are machines to make money. They are just corporations that suck in money from the faithful, especially the poorer ones, um, and provide for the uh, hierarchy of that uh, of those organizations. And they align themselves with, with Bolsonaro in exchange for, uh, for favors. And in doing this, brought into uh, the Bolsonaro camp 
a huge numbers of, uh, of political supporters. Um, Bolsonaro then brings in those uh, disparate groups, and then there's the ideologically middle classes, neoliberals, good chunk of, um, of Congress, and the Congress that was elected uh, together with Bolsonaro was the most right-wing Congress uh, in uh, recent Brazilian history. So Bolsonaro brings all these people together, but he cannot keep them together. Very rapidly, he he leaves his own political party. It was a, a small political party that he joined for convenient electoral reasons. He couldn't uh, get an understanding with them, so he left. He was unable to set up his own political party. There is a threshold of uh, signatures that has to be um, achieved. Bolsonaro could not reach that threshold, so he remained a, a, a president without a political party and then lost the capacity to bring together uh, parliament to vote for his uh, reforms. Every uh, significant reform he had to, uh, he, he proposed, he had to fight for. Now, the ones, the legislation that went through Congress, and it's very clear, the legislation that went through Congress under Bolsonaro was essentially neoliberal legislation. For that, for the reform of Social Security, the reform of labor law, that sort of thing, uh, privatization, it was perfectly possible for the right to build a coalition and just overwhelm, absolutely overwhelm the left. But these were not solid coalitions. And one of the most significant defeats of the Bolsonaro administration was at the beginning of the pandemic. We should come back to the pandemic later on. But there's a point that at the beginning of the pandemic, the Bolsonaro administration, led by Bolsonaro himself, absolutely denied the severity of the pandemic, the economic implications, the health implications, and the costs that will be attached, that will be attached to them, and rejected a proposal for a package of support for um the poor um, for the poor in Brazil. That was defeated in Congress by a coalition uh, of the left plus the centrists in Congress. Bolsonaro suffered a massive defeat and the biggest program of social transfers in Brazilian history was introduced at the beginning of COVID-19. A program that's so bold that it more than compensated the economic losses suffered for by the poor at the beginning of the pandemic. So they ended up better off economically uh, than they would have been had there been no pandemic. It was an incredible uh, success uh, by the left, which unsurprisingly was capitalized by Bolsonaro himself as he claimed the uh, virtues of the program and uh, suggested that he was leading the distribution of income and the distribution of those benefits, social benefits for the populace. But the reality is that he did not. In fact, he was against, and his whole camp uh, was against that. So Bolsonaro then had, had this political inability to uh, capitalize and to lead, and this was the most uh, significant difficulty, I think, that he his administration uh, has faced. On top of this, as you mentioned, there have been a succession of scandals of increasing severity in uh, Bolsonaro's administration. As he loses goodwill and as the administration loses popularity and their failed pandemic response had a lot to do with this loss of popularity and the perception of Bolsonaro after all is, is not efficient as a, even as a neoliberal uh, leader. The tolerance with the mismanagement 
the corruption, uh, the brutalities of his administration, that tolerance has declined and the media has increasingly started to cover that sort of material. And this has spiraled into heavier and heavier criticisms of Bolsonaro and his administration and some loss of support. Not a massive loss of support, but some loss of support that may make the difference in the uh, elections uh, to come. What is surprising uh, is not that the administration has lost support, it's how little support it has lost, given the gravity of the crisis, the economic crisis in Brazil, given the insufficiencies of the pandemic response was truly scandalous. No country in the world had a worst pandemic response because only in Brazil was the government actively against any form of uh, health policy, any form of economic policy to compensate the population. Government actually pushed as far as it could against any form of protection for the population. So given the scandalous nature of what they did, what is surprising is how little support Bolsonaro has, uh, has lost. And the fact that he's still a very competitive candidate uh, for the coming presidential uh, election. So it's an administration uh, of failure, an administration that has not been able to reverse economic stagnation in Brazil. It's a country adrift. It's a country where if you've been to Brazil a few years ago and returned to Brazil, uh, now, you'll be absolutely shocked by the extent of absolute poverty uh, that you will see everywhere. It is evident and scandalous that the number of poor people, destitute people, homeless people has increased so much across Brazil, that the level of violence has increased uh, so much. So it is an escalation of brutality. Um, that is very typical of this administration. There's a political commitment of this administration. And that uh, has contributed at the margin to a loss of support, but not as much as we would uh, hope and expect uh, and wish to see. So given what you've said about the difficulties Bolsonaro has experienced in office and the sort of social base he's tried to, to develop, how would you define Bolsonaroism now? And can Bolsonaroism survive a defeat for Bolsonaro at this presidential election? Bolsonaro himself uh, is a fascist. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Uh, depending on how you classify, he might be classified as a Nazi uh, as well, because there's a very strong element of uh, discrimination on the basis of race, on the basis of gender, um, in his in his ideology, what limits him is his political inability to implement his own agenda. So there's a, a mismatch between his extremely radical, vitriolic uh, discourse and the measures that he has been able to implement. He has attempted to articulate uh, coups uh, supported by the military or supported by the police a number of times. He has failed to do that. Uh, there is one final hope for him, which is to articulate a coup connected to the presidential elections. Bolsonaro, exactly like Donald Trump. Bolsonaro is very similar to Donald Trump. He's just less intelligent and less polite uh, than Trump is. 
Um, but very similar to Donald Trump, Bolsonaro has criticized the electoral system in Brazil. Uh, elections in Brazil for the past 20 plus years have been only uh, through electronic voting. You vote on a machine, you vote on the number of the candidate, and there has never been any um, significant problem with this voting system. There was a lot of suspicion that the voting system could be tampered with. There is no physical of verification of the vote. There's no printout of your vote that could be tallied independently of the totals given by the machines. But so far, there's been no evidence, absolutely no evidence that the system is flawed or that has, that has been used um, in fraudulent ways. Bolsonaro has latched onto this issue to claim that the elections are vulnerable to fraud and they cannot proceed. Um, like this. He tried to change the law to return to paper ballots, which were absolutely vulnerable to fraud uh, in Brazil, uh, but he failed to do that. He kept quiet uh, for a bit of time and then returned, but this time using the army to criticize the elections and using the army uh, to claim to be in a position uh, to verify the processes and the results of the elections. The Supreme Electoral Court has rejected uh, that. The Supreme Court has rejected that as well. But the army hovers uh, in the background. So there is an implicit threat of uh, a coup, which reinforces the point of the left that it is important. The, the electoral system in, in Brazil uh, for the, the voting for president is similar to the French system. Anybody can be a candidate in the first round and then the two uh, most highly voted candidates compete in the second round, unless the most, the candidate with the most votes has got more votes than all the other candidates put together. Then that person would be elected in the first round. So the push by the left has been for several months now to get Lula elected in the first round. Because the first round is, is when there's the most number of candidates. It's also the round that simultaneously elects the Chamber of Deputies and the Senate and a whole number of other uh, political uh, holders of office. The second round is basically just the presidential candidates. So it's much, the second round is much more vulnerable to a coup by Bolsonaro, to be much more polarized uh, much more fractious and much more vulnerable. The big plan of the left is to elect Lula straight away. That is looking difficult at this point in time. That is looking difficult um, for a number of reasons. But Lula at the moment is comfortably ahead. Now, suppose Bolsonaro loses the elections and gracefully leaves the palace uh, and returns to Rio. Uh, he would be immediately prosecuted for a number of crimes. That he absolutely does not want. And his uh, sons would also be prosecuted. So part of the political game in Brazil uh, today, I believe, is the posturing by Bolsonaro to try and get into a position to negotiate an exit for himself and his, and his children. Either amnesty or exile, possibly or probably in the United States so that they would not go to jail. Bolsonaro has declared that he will not go to jail. He will die, but he will not go to jail, which is, well, either way, it's fine uh, by me. It's, it's all right. But this would be, or this could be uh, very destabilizing politically um, 
in the country because he retains a significant measure uh, of support. He is also, uh, in my view, guilty of absolutely terrible crimes, uh, particularly in the context of the pandemic, but in other contexts, uh, true. Um, so the legal cases against him would be multiple and would be very strong. So he has a very big incentive not to lose and not to leave, not to leave the palace gratefully. It will be a significant challenge uh, for the left what to do with Bolsonaro if the left does win the elections. Now, what happens to the movement that has consolidated behind him is a more serious problem. Bolsonaro is not a serious politician. He is president by chance. But what his um, success shows is a very strong authoritarian trait in Brazilian society. It shows um, that it reveals, it's symptomatic that social exclusion is a constituting feature of uh, Brazilian society. Uh, the differences between rich and poor, the differences between uh, men and women, differences between different social groups, discrimination, prejudice, these are extremely strong traits in society and they will not change unless there is significant mobilization at the bottom of society and across, uh, and across the country. We are not there uh, yet. And these groups that support Bolsonaro, that bring together what is worse um, about uh, Brazil, these groups will continue to be there and they will support military coup, they will support other far-right political leaders, they will support reactionary political programs. So this is not about Bolsonaro himself. Defeating him is, is important, is essential at this point in time. But those social forces will continue to exist and they have been growing uh, and they are now out of the box. What Bolsonaro did was to start saying things that couldn't be said in Brazil since the restoration of democracy in the mid-1980s. He says them, and they have now become part of, uh, part of conventional open uh, discourse. Uh, it shouldn't be like this, but this is the situation the country is in uh, right now. And this reduces the degrees of freedom, again, for the next administration, very significant, significantly, because it has to deal with this hardened, minority, but a big minority on the far right of the political spectrum. Yeah, and I think we should we should discuss uh, what's likely to be the next administration, which is the, you know, it, it does seem that that Lula's is most likely to become president with all the kind of caveats that you've you've outlined. Thinking as much as uh, could you talk a bit more about what Lula has to contend with how that administration might face it, but also what's been going on in terms of this potentially new Lula, the the sort of political coalition that he has formed, you know, building a kind of popular front with sections of the centre-right. Um, do you think this implies, like, there's going to be quite a different way, different Lula to um, the 2003-2010 Lula that, that we witnessed or... Um, how do you see that kind of playing out, given the, the different contexts in building a coalition against Bolsonaro? Lula, in my view, is the most uh, successful and the most remarkable political leader of our generation. He is 
he's an absolutely extraordinary uh, personality. Now, subject to all sorts of criticisms, and I've criticized uh, his policies a number of times uh, in the past, but you have to recognize his virtues uh, on a par with Nelson Mandela's and possibly even more remarkable than Mandela in uh, significant ways. He was the most popular president in Brazilian history. When he left government in 2010, his approval ratings were between 80 and 90 percent. So absolutely remarkable. And he went to the bottom. He's been persecuted uh, viciously by right-wing forces. He ended up uh, in jail for 580 days for a series of uh, alleged crimes that he did not commit. And one by one, all those allegations against him were defeated in court. So he has been cleared of every uh, suggestion of corruption or anything else and came back to the political fray with enormous energy, um, despite his already advanced age, enormous energy. And he instantaneously destabilized, as he left uh, prison, he instantly destabilized the uh, scene in Brazil and started building a coalition around uh, himself in order to win the elections. Now, this is very much the Lula of uh, the beginning of his uh, first administration. Lula that extends himself out to different uh, social groups to try and build coalitions and then be able to govern. Lula, Lula is a social democrat. Lula is a trade unionist. He is a negotiator by nature. He is someone who can bring people together. He's got this talent of bringing people together. And he has done this incredibly successfully. So his project for these presidential elections uh, this year has been to peel off fractions of capital that used to support Bolsonaro by highlighting the fact that Bolsonaro has been a failure on the economic uh, domain. And if you look at the past, look at what I did, we were much more successful with that other type of economic program, more nationalist, uh, greater levels of state intervention, more distribution, more consumption uh, by the poor and the working classes and so on. And he has been able to do that because he's got a, a, a faithful mass base of support. So he is respected uh, for that reason. He's peeled off a bit of uh, Bolsonaro's support amongst the middle classes in the name of democracy, in the name of fairness, in the name of justice, and in the name of the other side is really fascist and we can't uh, allow the constitution to be trampled in that way. And we have to build a coalition for democracy. So um, vote for me, um, even if you don't like me very much, but um, we have to preserve democracy. He has been able to peel off support from Bolsonaro amongst the evangelical churches, not only because of the failure of the Bolsonaro administration and the inflationary crisis and the, uh, and the pandemic, uh, response of the government contributed a lot to alienate a big uh, number of people, but also the memory of the social programs that still introduced, the memory of the electrification of the country, the memory that there were programs to take every child to school, wherever this child lived. Uh, school buses would go from farmhouse to farmhouse to pick up children in the morning, take them uh, to school, and then drive them back um, in, the, uh, in the afternoon. Absolutely remarkable set of uh, social programs introduced by that administration uh, at a very low uh, cost and with great uh, efficiency. So he's been able to try and bring uh, again together those uh, social groups and also counting on the uh, support of the former working class that he already 
had and that remained uh, attached to the Workers' Party uh, and to Lula uh, himself. Now, he's a massive figure. Um, but in the process of building those coalitions, part of the cost of building those coalitions, uh, just like for the 2002 elections, is that Lula is not very precise about what it is that he's going to do. There are hints uh, and shadows thrown and suggestions of a more nationalist economic program, the end of privatizations, of investment initiatives and support for um, um, family agriculture and small, uh, a whole range of measures that are suggested, but no big idea, because a big idea might capitalize or, or bring together support from some groups, but might lose other groups. And Lula doesn't do losing groups. He, he, he thrives on this fuzzy image of a successful leader in the past and someone who will secure democracy and that will have a government with some uh, distribution uh, involved. And I believe they will come up uh, being elected with creative programs of uh, social integration and distribution of income. But there's no escape from this, the fact that the economic situation in Brazil is absolutely dire from every point of view. This is a country that has lost competitiveness, that has lost capacity for growth, that has been on a low investment trajectory for many, many years, a country that has become locked into a pattern of, uh, of international specialization based on primary product exports, soya, iron ore, et cetera, especially uh, to, uh, to China, a country that imports a vast um, proportion of the manufactured products that are consumed domestically, that has um, neglected the upgrading of its manufacturing structure. It's a country that does not have a clear driver of growth. Brazil has also squandered a lot of the resources from the uh, oil discoveries in the South Atlantic that could have funded a number of social programs and infrastructure uh, programs. And that was the plan under Lula and under uh, the Dilma Rousseff administration that succeeded him with that. That has all been uh, wasted. So it is a country without a driver of growth. It's a country without a driver of employment. It's a country where it is very difficult to imagine what is it that is going to allow Brazil to create a sufficient number of jobs, paying sufficiently well to integrate that society. So the challenge for the government will be very difficult, or the set of economic challenges will be very difficult in a society that is much more deeply divided than it was 20 years ago. So how Lula is going to um, bring the country together at the same time as develop a viable economic program for Brazil to grow and to create jobs, while part of the, the question of the environmental crisis and all the limitations that that should impose to any model of growth, even if you park that, it is difficult to see where the resources are going to come from, where the inspiration is going to come from, and the space. Because by now, Brazil has become consolidated as a provider of basic goods for China. China is Brazil's biggest trading partner. And what Brazil does as a character is to supply soybeans for animal feed in China. And in exchange, Brazil imports manufactured goods. How can you develop 
drivers of growth in a country that has lost a lot of its capacity for industrial policy, a lot of its capacity for industrial financing, because of the dismantling, the institutional dismantling under Bolsonaro uh, and previously under Temer, that is difficult to see. And if Lula cannot deliver some gains there, it will be difficult to maintain his political legitimacy for very long. I mean, just a very quick kind of comment. It sounds a lot like the critique that you you and others and uh, would were making of Lula when he was last in power of like a lot of pro-poor policies and not much structural reform. <laughs> so actually has are we seeing but harsher conditions this time around? <laughs> so is that a fair assessment? <laughs> I think it is a fair assessment in the sense that Brazil has not changed very much. Lula was successful in his two administrations and, and Dilma Rousseff in the beginning of her first administration, partly because of their own policies, but largely because of the global commodity boom. The global commodity boom was incredibly favorable to countries like uh, Brazil, then across Latin America, uh, supported the success of the pink tide um, administrations. Now, in the case of Brazil, um, but also in other cases too, the global commodity boom offered the possibility of distribution without losers. So you, you had resources to give to the poor, but you, and you did not have to take uh, very clearly from, uh, from, the, from the rich and from the privileged. Once the global commodity boom evaporated when, around 2011, 2012, that possibility uh, vanished. And then if you wanted to proceed with redistribution, you would have to find those resources domestically and that proved to be impossible. Now we are not in a favorable situation evidently in terms of the global economy. So Lula comes to power, those limitations will bite. And I think the criticism will, will bite as well. Without structural economic reform and without a clear plan uh, that will bring out the capacities of Brazilian manufacturing industry to create a dynamic core for the economy of the country, without the capacity to invest in urban infrastructure, which is exactly the same problem just 20 years ago, the country will not be able to thrive. There is, I cannot see um, sources of demand and I cannot see um, a platform for growth without those basic investments in infrastructure and in uh, distribution. And then in a society that is even more divided than before, with the possibility that Congress will still be dominated by the right, it will be difficult for Lula to run a viable government. Very similar, unfortunately, to the constraints he had back in 2003, minus the global commodity boom that is not and will not be present this time around. Just to broaden the discussion out slightly, um, we've seen new progressive governments in Latin America, in Chile, Colombia. Do you, uh, presumably in those countries, those governments face the same challenges uh, or similar challenges. Um, and what do you think is, uh, you know, wh where do you see the kind of momentum in, in Latin American politics? Because it didn't seem a while ago, maybe around the time of Bolsonaro's election, that there was a surge towards the right. That seems to have ebbed now. So where, where's the momentum going in, in Latin American politics? 
think at the moment, the initiative is with the left, and particularly if Lula wins the elections in Brazil, that will give a massive boost, given Brazil's uh, size and role in the region, massive boost for forces of, uh, of the left. It is interesting that the two examples you mentioned, Chile and Colombia, countries that have been dominated by the political right for a long time. Chile does tie down by, by, by its constitution, even with nominally center-left governments. In Colombia, traditionally, uh, a country dominated by the political uh, political right. So this is fresh air. Um, Argentina is living through enormous economic difficulties, uh, but that will be a source of relief as well uh, for Argentina if uh, Lula is elected. So to some extent, there is um, a space for initiatives coming from the center-left. Now, Latin America is... is an extremely interesting region, um, and you never get bored uh, looking at what's happening in Latin America. And things change uh, very rapidly and very significantly. I think part of the um, recent developments that we see there are the result of the absolute failure of this turbocharged neoliberalism that success that succeeded the pink tide uh, across the region. It failed everywhere. It was not a to generate the dynamics of growth in any way, shape, or form, because neoliberalism doesn't function as a mechanism to generate uh, growth. It, it functions as a mechanism to generate speculative bubbles and to enrich the middle classes and the rich, and then they manage to stabilize their political grip uh, on power. But they cannot generate uh, broad-based uh, economic growth. And once uh, constraints bite or inevitable economic crises uh, follow, then you see the failure and the, well, the limitations and then the failure of their projects. In the cases of Chile and Colombia, it's very, very stimulating, very interesting to see the depth of popular mobilization, political mobilizations uh, against the neoliberal order uh, and the right-wing um, uh, hegemony in those two countries. Absolutely wonderful uh, to see that. Also similar in Bolivia, a country that defeated uh, a coup uh, mm -hmm. against, uh, against the left. So very, very interesting forces have been unle and unleashed. And that is, that is the hope. That is the hope. That social movements uh, like those uh, ones in, 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 in Colombia, but particularly in Chile, extremely strong and well-organized social movement, they can keep themselves together and that those movements can inspire other movements uh, in uh, different parts of the, of the region. A limitation uh, in Brazil has been the disorganization uh, of the left um, for for many years now. The left has uh, tried but failed repeatedly and consistently to inspire mass movements in Brazil. There's a mobilized core, but this mobilized core of people is relatively small. It has been alarming to see how little support there was uh, to defend the Dilma Rousseff administration under threat of impeachment. Uh, and then subsequently to resist and protest against the Temer administration and against the Bolsonaro administration. There's been relentless activity, but it's not mass uh, activity, not broad-based. Uh, Brazil has not been able to mobilize masses of millions of people as has been possible to do uh, in Chile. Uh, there is demoralization, there is disorganization, there's a weakness of trade unions, the disarticulation of the labor market. There are very interesting initiatives uh, here and there. Um, the, the, the organization and the strikes of uh, food delivery riders, uh, for example, and mobilization of Uber drivers, very, very interesting. Uh, 
but they haven't reached the stage where you could say there is an independent mass movement uh, on the left and that has its own political character and political force. We're not there uh, yet. Uh, and this is a shame and the greatest vulnerability uh, of the left and of Lula himself. And I'm not sure that the PT uh, and Lula realize how big this vulnerability is. They still seem to hope that the politics of coalitions and deals uh, will let them, will allow them to win the elections and then uh, will allow them to govern in peace. I seriously doubt that this is what's going to happen. I think they will be, um, if they uh, win the elections uh, in this way, they'll be going from one political crisis to another relentlessly with massive opposition from the media uh, and from significant fractions of capital. It will be very difficult to keep that together. There's a, a lot of debate right now about whether um, US global hegemony is on the wane or not, especially in, in, uh, in the context of the Ukraine war. Um, Latin America has traditionally been seen as um, the US's backyard. Um, you've already spoken about how China is, is extremely influential in, in Brazil today. How, how do you see uh, US imperialism in Latin America today? Is its influence waning? There are different um, ways to look at this. At the cultural level, it's incredibly strong. United States is where Latin American countries look uh, towards uh, in the spread of new forms of communication through the internet and cable television, et cetera, has contributed enormously to consolidate the influence of US culture uh, across Latin America. Uh, politically, it's also very, very strong. The United States engineered pools in uh, Honduras, in Paraguay, in Brazil, uh, in Bolivia. Uh, it uh, has contributed to every political reversal uh, in the region in the past and uh, up to now. The significant difference uh, at the moment is that the US is not economically uh, dominant in the region as it was uh, in the past. China has become the biggest trading partner of the vast majority of countries uh, across Latin America, uh, particularly in the field of uh, Latin America exports most resources to China and imports manufactured goods from China. This is bound to have political uh, implications, but it really hasn't. Uh, so far, China is extremely cautious in how it approaches Latin America and other regions uh, in the world as well. So over the long term, yes, uh, I, I believe U.S. hegemony is in the way in Latin America and in other parts of the world, but the U.S. will continue to be an incredibly strong uh, economy and will continue to be a very, very strong uh, power, militarily speaking, a power that might easily uh, become more aggressive as it loses uh, economic space uh, internationally. A power that might see uh, confrontation now as being strategically better for itself than confrontation 10 or 20 or 50 years from now, when its relative position will have become worse. And I think the US state has realized that. It's not a vulnerability that is particularly important in the context of Latin America, but it is important in the global context. So. Uh, I expect to see a more aggressive and more assertive United States um, around the world. Uh, and in the case of Latin America, a, 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 a United States that polices developments in the region and tries to interfere with less and less capacity to do this 
but they may escalate. The notion of the Monroe Doctrine, U.S. dominates uh, across Latin America, nobody uh, else, no other power has any right to, uh, to interfere in that region. That is still very strong uh, ideology within the United States itself. I mean, obviously, Latin America was key to the pioneering of, of neoliberalism, Earth, Chile under Pinochet, um, seen as a neoliberal laboratory. And now it seems clear that as everything you've, you've, you've spoken to, that neoliberalism is in trouble as a global economy lurches from one crisis to the next. But in the research that you've done a lot on neoliberalism, you you decipher between crises within neoliberalism and crisis of neoliberalism. Where do you think we are at the moment and what are the prospects of moving to a post-neoliberal paradigm? I think neoliberalism today, it is it finds itself trapped um, at a global level. The three uh, significant uh, challenges that are specific to neoliberalism and one challenge that will continue even after. Neoliberalism is trapped by an, an, an economic predicament, which is it has achieved absolute domination uh, in the economic domain. It has got everything it wanted. It defeated, the West defeated um, the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Neoliberalism spread around the world. The vast majority of countries has, have adopted neoliberal policies, trade liberalization, financial liberalization, liberalization of capital flows. Um, precarious labor has spread uh, around the world, etc., uh, etc. Et neoliberalism has achieved everything it wanted. And the world has been gripped for decades now by a situation of growth slowdown and investment decline, particularly countries in the OECD, but more generally. Uh, so you gave neoliberalism everything it wanted, and it was unable to capitalize on any of that. That is a problem, an economic problem uh, that was revealed with the 2007 global financial crisis, the biggest crisis since 1929, that, that was followed by the slowest and most regressive economic recovery on record, and that became known as the Great Stagnation. And then the global economy absolutely tanked with the pandemic, the sharpest economic contraction in history, and now followed by the crisis that is starting now, and we don't know where this is going to end. So global neoliberalism in the economic domain is a failure, and it is trapped. It is also trapped in the political domain, because neoliberalism spread its own political order around the world since the 1980s, a political order that is grounded on the notion of the international community and globally and political democracy internally, but this political democracy is a weak and diluted and typically neoliberal form of democracy that is stunted in fundamental ways, a democracy that does not include the economic domain. You can talk about anything, but you can't talk about the economy. So why are you going to talk about? What are you going to talk about? What was what ended up occupying this, this political uh, space in the absence of economic growth, prosperity, and the, the capacity of the previous generation to, lead, to, to, to support their children having better living conditions than, that, than they, they themselves uh, had. What occupied that was the, the search for the guilty ones. Who and what is responsible for this failure? And since you can't talk about the economy changes in the economy, so it became a battle about culture, it became a battle about religion, it became a battle 
uh, about um, about abortion. It became about battles, localized battles that pitched um, working people against working people, that created false debates, and that created the space for the emergence of what I like to call spectacular political leaders, those, those leaders on the far right that present themselves as being outside of the political spectrum, present themselves as being uniquely capable of bending neoliberal institutions and the neoliberal state uh, to, to their will in order to deliver benefits uh, and gains to, 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 to the majority of people. Now, why do these absurd and sometimes pathetic figures, Bolsonaro ahead of all of them, uh, but also Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, et cetera, et cetera. Why do they find political space? And my suggestion is that once neoliberalism has been very successful and dismantled the political left, dismantled all sorts of sources of opposition to itself uh, and disarticulated uh, labor markets around the world, the way in which you could have agency. You lost political agency. The majority of the population, the people who are represented by them, they lost political agency. So you, you, your only hope is to project your agency onto someone else. Someone who seems to be very powerful and comes from outside the political spectrum. You know that there are problems in the political uh, institutions and you know that the political system and they say do not respond to your needs. Your need for housing, for hospitals, for schools, etc. They don't respond. Now there is this guy, and it's always a guy, who seems to be very strong and successful, maybe that is the way uh, forward. So there is uh, an attraction uh, there. But those political leaders, they, they are limited because they have a commitment to neoliberalism, all of them, and they have a commitment to their own uh, political power and the perpetuation of their own political power. But they can't deliver. Once they are attached to neoliberalism, to this personalization of power, they cannot deliver the improvements they had promised. So what they uh, invariably do is to create enemies and to create political battles to shift attention away from their own inabilities and incapacities. In the UK, it's Brexit. Uh, in the United States, it was cultural battles, it was abortion, it was uh, all that. In the case of Brazil, it was guns, it was uh, security, and it was the, um, the electoral system. And so, a, a continuous succession of battles that works like a bicycle. Those people, those leaders keep pedaling this bicycle. They don't deliver uh, anything in, in, in the end. In fact, they impose uh, measures that worsen the situation uh, of, uh, of the poor, that make the economy even more regressive and more precarious, uh, etc. And then they continue pedaling by finding new enemies. But this is a limited strategy. You can't do this forever. My suspicion is that this crisis of neoliberal democracy leads to uh, the rise of fascism. The neoliberalism is trapped then by this crisis of representation that is connected to the political crisis. And in the background of it all, there is the environmental uh, crisis. It is an absolutely non-negotiable constraint on the neoliberal uh, economy and on the global economy, whatever uh, way it organizes uh, itself. But the peculiarity of the neoliberal system is that it is absolutely incapable of addressing the uh, climate crisis. It is structurally incapable because a financialized economy, as we have now, is by nature a short-termist economy. It's by nature an economy of easy profits. It's by nature an economy of making a killing right now, because if you don't, somebody else will. 
And that traps the economy into a, a pattern of investing in what it had already invested before, not investing in structural change because structural change is costly, it's complicated, it's risky, and it will be uh, disruptive, but investing in the same structures that it had. Now, this is incompatible with the absolutely massive structural changes that need to be made at the social level in order to address climate, uh, climate change. So neoliberalism is trapped by crises of its own making, and it is trapped by this environmental constraint that is absolutely binding and very, very urgent. All of those constraints have to be addressed uh, politically. The political system is not able to respond. Instead, we find ourselves trapped more recently by this new uh, unfolding economic uh, crisis. Governments respond using the same tools as in the past, same absolutely neoliberal tools as in the past. So if there is inflation, you must raise interest rates. Regardless of the source of inflation, this has nothing to do with excess demand. Quite the contrary. It's to do with a number of other things. Disorganization of production chains has to do with COVID, has to do with energy, has to do with a number of things that does not have to do with uh, excess demand, but this is what they know what to do. These are the institutions that were built in the neoliberal period. And that will have implications, not only for the advanced economies that lead this process, but around the world. Every time you raise interest rates, you destabilize poor countries uh, around the world. Every time the global uh, capitalist economy finds itself enmeshed in some form of crisis, the most fragile links on the chain will suffer most. We see uh, Sri Lanka as, as a clear example. Every time we have um, a deterioration uh, of the environment, we see catastrophes starting with the poor, affecting with the poorest, the poorest people in the poorest countries. We see what happened in Pakistan uh, very recently. It's still happening there. So it's an absolute disaster that neoliberalism is unable to change course it is unable to address the big questions uh, of the day. It is a singularly paralyzed, fossilized economic system that has an iron grip over the global uh, political uh, economy. This will not change. And these crises in neoliberalism will not become a crisis of neoliberalism that could lead to a different form of organization of capitalism even, uh, hopefully something better, but uh, capitalism even, that, will, that transition will not happen without mobilization. It is very interesting to see the extent to which uh, workers' mobilizations have taken off through and because of the recent bout of inflation. If they remain limited to that, they will be resolved with some form of negotiation and this bubble of inflation will evaporate in the next year or two years. And so those struggles could all dissolve themselves. But if they can become the lever for a broader questioning of the economy and the political system under which we live, then there is hope. Now, I am hopeful in a sense that because we have seen successes by the left uh, in recent times, we saw the scope for, the, for mobilization of the Bernie Sanders campaign. We saw the, success, uh, the successes of the Corbyn, uh, Jeremy Corbyn movement in the UK. We saw the successes of Syriza at the beginning when they were elected several years ago. Even the Workers' Party in Brazil, as an example, in Spain, etc. That are instances of success. But all of those ended up in significant failure uh, and defeat as well. So this is an example of the pressures that the left must uh, suffer and will continue to suffer 
But they show, they suggest that there is mass dissatisfaction out there. And the question is, how do we reach out? How do we mobilize? How do we contribute to awareness and then bring people together? And there's no recipes for this. This, this, is, a, this is a practical reality that has to be confronted. It's, it's about, this is about activism, not about great ideas. It's about going down there and doing something and seeing eventually what works. And on the basis of successful experiences, then you try to replicate them. So let's look at Chile. Let's look at Bolivia. Let's look at those successful experiences of mobilization. Let's look at movements in India that have been successful to some extent as well. Let's see what we can learn from them. Let's look at Black Lives Matter in the United States. Mass movement, incredibly uh, beautiful to, to observe how they were successful in organizing people. What are the lessons from, from that? And what can we do that builds on those uh, very minor still success, but then maybe we can achieve more uh, in the future. Now that is urgent because there is a clock ticking in the, in the background, uh, which is the clock of the environmental uh, crisis. If we, if we take too long, if we allow neoliberalism to continue with its grip on the economy, we are on course for what, four to seven degrees uh, of global warming by the end of the century. That is in the time of people who are already alive in the world uh, today. And this will be absolutely catastrophic and transformative for conditions of life as we uh, think we know it. So this, these, um, these mobilizations are urgent and they have to be successful very quickly. I hope we can do that with the speed and uh, radicalism that is that are necessary. If we don't, that will be a failure. Uh, of our generation. Well, I think we should leave it there. I think want to say thanks a lot to Alfredo for joining us on our first pod. That's been a tour de force. Um, covered a lot of ground. And how how was it being on our first pod? <laughs> it's a real privilege for me. Thank you so much, Alice and Ben. It's it's fantastic to contribute, and I hope this is a conversation that we can continue uh, another time. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.